As the kids are being dismissed, I just want to encourage what you saw there, as, I, as uh, Pastor Jerry mentioned, is from the Bible Project. They have videos like that that go all the way from the book of Genesis through to the end of the Bible to the end of Revelation. And it is so foundational. I would encourage you, there's like 40 or 50 videos. They're each about 15 minutes long. If you just watched one video a day over the next couple months or so, it would give you such a good, strong foundation in understanding the Scripture as you are reading it. And so I can't encourage you more where you are in your faith, if you're beginning or you're searching, or even you've been in the faith for a while, uh, how foundational this series will be in help you in understanding Scripture. Because it shows you, as you saw in the video, how all of these themes tie together in the Scripture. They're not just random themes, not just random stories being told, but they're deliberately being crafted to tell one grand story. So, anyway, you can get them on YouTube. Just type in The Bible Project, and maybe for your devotions for the next uh, couple of months, you can just watch a 15-minute video each day and go through the Bible this way. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, I was... Looking back at some of the earliest sermons that I preached at Bethany when I started here eight years ago, it's always uh, interesting to do that. You, you read through some of these things and you're like, wow, I said that, or why did I preach on that? And you kind of analyze a little bit about where you're at and where the church was at at that time. And one of the sermons that I found that I preached in about the second month that I was here after I was hired by the church was a sermon called Tithes Are Not Binding. And when I preached that sermon, I was actually wearing the same shirt that I'm wearing now. So I thought that I would um, wear the same shirt because for today's message, I want to re-preach the beginning, not the whole message. Uh, I'm not going to cheat this morning. Uh, but I'm going to re-preach this, just the introduction to that sermon that I preached uh, eight years ago when I started at the church. The reason I want to do that is because it's going to be a good tie-in with where we are in the book of Acts today, but it also is a good reminder to let us know some of the things, some of the issues that we were going through and that we were facing eight years ago, and hopefully where we've come since then. So this is how that message began. A few months ago, when you hired me, I promised you that I would be committed to biblical preaching. And when I made that promise, there was a number of people in the congregation that even said amen. Now, I realize that when you said amen to that, you probably didn't quite realize how radical a statement like that is. For biblical preaching is preaching that will continually change the church. See, when you're... Uh, Two months into something, everybody's eager for that. Eight years later, it's a little bit tougher to think about change like that. But biblical preaching will continue to change the church. A few months ago, I promised you when I candidated that I would be committed to biblical preaching. Now, under biblical preaching, you'll be surprised at how quiet the Bible is in regards to many of our most cherished practices and beliefs. And under biblical preaching, you'll also be surprised and somewhat uncomfortable with the kinds of topics the Bible addresses that we would rather not talk about. For instance, the Bible says absolutely nothing about what time of day or which day of the week we should hold worship services on. The New Testament 
tells us nothing about what musical instruments should be played in church. The Bible doesn't speak about Sunday school, youth groups, or mission committees. It says nothing about what a church building should look like. The Bible never mentions the shape of the stage. Remember all that platform issue stuff that we had back then? Or whether or not we should use pulpits or communion tables. In fact, the way we practice communion today looks nothing like the way the New Testament practiced communion. The Bible doesn't talk about pastors performing marriages. The Bible is vague on church government. It doesn't talk about boards. It doesn't provide us with a constitution. And the Bible doesn't even tell us whether or not God likes or dislikes neckties. Now, I'm not saying that these things are therefore wrong, but I'm also not saying that these things are therefore right either. I'm simply drawing attention to the fact that there's not in the Bible and how easy it is to get our culture wrapped up into what we think Scripture is about. And so, since I'm committed to biblical preaching, I promise you that I will preach zero sermons on these kinds of topics. Not that I won't ever mention them, because obviously I'm mentioning them right now, but I can't give you a biblical sermon about any of these topics, other than what the Bible teaches in regards to things like this is openness and freedom, and in fact actually condemns rigidness and legalism. Now, on the other hand, there are plenty of issues that the Bible does speak about, frequently and frankly. For instance, the Bible has a lot to say about the topics of sex and money. There are only 66 books in the Bible, but a simple check in the concordance reveals only two, or more than 200 references to money and over 100 references to sex. And that's just by putting those two words in. There's a lot of other allusions to those topics as well. So with there being only 66 books, they are practically covered in every single book in the Bible. And so, since I am committed to biblical preaching, I promise you no sermons on furniture and decorations, but plenty of sermons on sex and money. I also promise I will never preach about wearing a tie, but that I will preach about tithes, or more accurately as New Testament people, on how Christians should relate to their money. So that was eight years ago. Hopefully I've, I've somewhat kept my promise from that sermon there, and I want to continue to make that promise with you. And over the years, I think also, when you look back at how far we have come in a very positive way as we have matured and grown as a church in regards to these kinds of issues. Well, today, in our sermon in the book of Acts, we are once again, and in fact, we're going to be dealing with this for the next uh, a few weeks, is going to keep coming up. Pastor Jerry's preaching next week, and it's going to come up there again. We are going to be talking about the issue of money, as it is addressed right at the very beginning of the church, as we see in, saw in the video there. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, and the few verses we're going to look at this morning are 
from 32 to the end of the chapter. Acts 4. Now it says all the believers, the new temple, as we saw in the video, all the believers, this new temple, new covenant people, were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. And so they shared everything that they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon all of them. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to everyone in need. For instance, there was a guy named Joseph, the one apostle nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I always think that would be the greatest nickname to be given, son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Now, this is a pretty ideal picture of the church right at the beginning. And throughout this series, you've been hearing both Pastor Jerry and myself say repeatedly that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. What does that mean? It means that the book of Acts is a history. It's a telling us what happened with the early church when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church and how they acted and how they looked at their situation and reached into their situation. It's not a policy manual of how churches always should be run. In fact, it would be very difficult to even figure out from the book of Acts how churches always should be run. And so when we approach passages like today's passage, we need to approach them and see what is going on in the church, what is causing them to do this, and how can we relate to that today? Not what are the rules they're following and how, therefore, should we enforce all the same rules today? Because obviously, we all here today are not doing what the apostles are doing here. Nobody here has sold everything that they have, um, all their land and all their houses to come and gather today. So we kind of know this intuitively. But it's important for us to remind ourselves this. So the early church, Holy Spirit comes upon them, they decide, it says that they felt that they should sell everything that they have, particularly to give to those that were in need so that there would be equality among all people in the church. Certainly something that the Bible teaches and encourages, that is equality among all people. It's what communion is about every time we gather together, that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor, we're all one in Christ. Some have even suggested that though this is what the church did in this instance, it wasn't even necessarily the best practice. Uh, maybe they were just overwhelmed by their enthusiasm of the moment. Because as we look at the rest of the New Testament, it's interesting that Paul spends almost all of his ministry constantly collecting money for the poor church in Jerusalem, which sold everything they had to give to the poor. And then, obviously, became very poor themselves. So, maybe it wasn't even that smart of an idea of what they did, and it ended up becoming a burden upon the rest of the churches. But we can catch 
something about the attitude in these early Christians that I think is very positive and something that we can learn from. You see, they were a church which deeply understood that Jesus had given himself to them. And so therefore, their natural response was to give absolutely unconditionally and with abundance to other people. For the early church, it seemed like that was just the natural outflow of what one should do. When one has been so given to Jesus, surrendering his very life to them, the outflow is to give even foolishly. When one is in love, they don't usually calculate the costs or reason everything out about what they're doing. Now, I say they usually don't calculate the cost. Sometimes, even when you're in love, you need a little bit of coaching in this. I remember early on in my relationship with Nancy when we were first married, she always wanted me to, once in a while, just bring home flowers. And I'd always be like, flower? I mean, 50 bucks for a bunch of roses that are going to die in a few days? I mean, that's silly. What a waste of money. Um, Not the kind of thing to say to your wife or to someone you love who would like flowers. You see, sometimes you need coaching in this too. It's not about the money. It's not about how uh, uh, maybe foolish it might be or that the flowers are going to... It's about love. It's about giving. It's about generosity. It's about simply saying, I love you. And when we understand that or when we're coached in that, when we need to be reminded of it, money becomes something that is not calculated. It's love. Here, the church is young. They're of one heart and one mind. There's unity. They are reckless. They're generous. They're, they're without a budget. They're unpredictable. And they're even a bit foolish. But they're in love with Jesus. And in many ways... That seems to be something that God desires. Love. It's much better to be a church like that than the church that we read about in Revelation. Now, interesting, and this is kind of striking when you make the contrast, this church in Revelation, one of the churches that Jesus is talking about, is described as this, established, persevering, hardworking, hating evil, and even patiently suffering persecution. Now, I mean, I can't think of better qualities. Look at that. Established, hardworking, hating evil, patiently suffering persecution. And yet this church that has those qualities, Jesus says this about them in Revelation 2. And yet you don't love me or each other like you did at first. Look how far you have fallen from your first love. Turn back to me again and work as you did at first. I find that astonishing. You can be an established, hardworking church that hates evil, even patiently suffers persecution, and yet lose the love for Jesus. And it's manifested here, your love for 
each other. And Jesus says, look, look how far you've fallen. Fallen? This can be hard to digest, but it's the same description that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13, where all of our good works and deeds and things can be like noise to God if there is not love. Paul says the same thing, even if you lay down your life or, or give everything you have to the poor. He uses those very examples. Maybe in, when he was writing 1 Corinthians, he was thinking back to this time in Acts and saying, you can give it all away, you can suffer persecution, but if you have not love, it's nothing. Foolish, disorganized, reckless love for Jesus is better than reasonable, organized, calculated programs about or for Jesus when people have, in the midst of it, lost their love for him and for one another. See, Jesus, even when people come into the, the, the midst of the church, Jesus is usually caught by a church's ethos of abounding love more than through arguments, budgets, programs, or buildings. You know, I've been here for eight years, and we have a beautiful building here. But I have never had a single person come to me and say, you know what brought me into the church? You know what brought me closer to Jesus? You know what made me want to come? Is the building was so beautiful. Never. I've never heard that. But what I have heard many times is people have said, you know, when I came to Bethany, people were so friendly the, 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 what was going on in the foyer, people talking to me or people showing me where to drop my kids off or people taking me here, invited me over for lunch after the service. The church, the, there was something in the atmosphere in the foyer when people were talking and it made me want to know what these people had and through the process they discovered Jesus. That's what matters. At this stage in Acts, the church is newly born and it's this newborn faith that has an immediate effect on their wallets. It's interesting. I mean, money is so close. That's why the Bible addresses these issues of, of money and sexuality uh, so often, is because these things are so close to the heart of who we are. It's why paganism, or even in our modern day, the kinds of gods that we pursue, if we don't pursue the one true God, is money, sex, and power. They're the big idols, and so we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible continually addresses them. And so when the newborn church encounters the Holy Spirit, it immediately has an effect on their wallets. The early Christians knew that you could not disconnect a relationship with Christ from your money. Like the one guy who was getting baptized and just before he was plunged into the water, he quickly reached his hand into his pocket, and as they plunged him down, he held up his wallet so that everything went into the water except his wallet. Well, that's not a real baptism, because in baptism, everything goes under, including your wallet. And you don't have to worry about it, because now with the new Canadian money, it doesn't even get wrecked. Everything is baptized. And so this morning, I want to look at what it appears like in Scripture to be a faithful Christian and an unfaithful Christian when it comes to issues of money. 
For the faithful Christian, Jesus calls us to surrender everything to him. Which might seem then to have to go the path of doing what the early church did and sell everything. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 16, if you want to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. Now, there's a couple of things in there that obviously even relate to money. First off, how much is money related to our selfish ambition? But Jesus says you need to put that to death. It's now about me, and if it's about me, you are now going to have to shoulder your cross. A cross, I mean, ultimately a cross is death. But a cross is a burden. It's a sacrifice. Which means when it comes to our finances, too, that generous giving is going to be a bit of a cross. It's going to be a sacrifice. Jesus also went on to say that not only does following him reorient, it every, orient everything about how we relate to money, but Jesus says that he has to come before our family. Jesus also says that we have to come before our very lives. I mean, when you think about it, those statements alone make Jesus a crazy person or a cult leader if he wasn't truly the son of God. Imagine somebody going around saying, you got to follow me, and if you're going to follow me, you got to give me everything. I'm more important than your money. I'm more important than your family. I'm more important than your life. I mean, who does this guy think he is? In the Old Testament, the saints practiced giving a tithe of their possession to God as an act of worship and as an act of trust. Now, a tithe is 10%. It's 10% of everything that you owned. Which is interesting because you see then the church in Acts going well beyond the tithe. I mean, the earliest church, the one here in Acts, would have all been Jewish believers. They would all have been raised in the tithe mentality. So it's so fascinating for them all of a sudden, now that they've come into the spirit and the understanding of Jesus Christ, they don't say, now we better start keeping the tithe. They... They go way beyond all of a sudden being motivated by a tithe. But in the Old Testament, the tithe is a commandment that you find in the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy. God also calls people in the tithe to give of the first fruits. That is the best. So if you had ten lambs, you gave God one of those lambs, but you made sure you gave him the best one, not the worst one. If you went to a synagogue that had a youth group and you had 10 couches, you gave the youth group your best couch, not your worst couch that the dump wouldn't even take. You give your best. In fact, the Old Testament prophets continually chastised God's people for not honoring him with their tithes. Prophet Malachi, God speaking through Malachi, says, When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals, and then offer them as sacrifices, should I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? I mean, you could see how a lot of people, and this is what the law can do when we just live by the law, uh, you could see how the law for some people was just a convenient way to get rid of their garbage. 
And so I have 10 lambs, one lamb is sick or maybe it got wounded, is injured, and, and all of a sudden it's time for that point of the year to give my tithe. And so I'm like, well, you know, let's skim off all my garbage, all my sick and weak lambs and all those thing, lambs that I probably can't use anyway. Perfect. I can kind of purge them out of my system and I'll give them to God even. 10%. And God said, should I accept that kind of sacrifice? I mean, again, back to the analogy of the flowers, could you imagine if, if I came home with a bunch of flowers for Nancy and they were all dying and wilted and pretty much losing their petals and Nancy's like, what is that? And I said, well, I mean, I, I went to the flower shop and they had these in the discount bin and they, they, were, they were half price. I think Nancy would be like, wow, what a man you are. Thanks for saving that money. She'd be like, don't even bother. If you're going to do that, don't even bother. This is kind of what God is saying here. Should I accept that? Malachi later says, should people cheat God? Yet you've cheated me. God sees this as cheating him. But you ask, what do you mean? God, when did we ever cheat you? I mean, they could probably even say, we even stuck to the letter of the law, and yet God says, you have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, we have several passages that talk about giving, but we no longer have the New Testament mentioning tithing. Therefore, we need to recognize also with the whole mentality of the New Testament that in the New Testament, we're no longer under the law. Sometimes, Things like tithing could be a good example for us. It could be a good guideline. But we cannot make a 10% tithe a rule. We're no longer under law like that. In fact, the New Testament moves from the mandatory 10% tithe to the freedom of now you must decide yourself in your heart. And see, that's why uh, people can get uncomfortable with the New Testament. Um, because we go, yes, but if everybody just decides with their heart, what if we're not going to have enough money that kind of comes in, and so maybe we should put some rules in place and that. We have to be very careful to go there because it produces not a New Testament church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. It's no longer you must give 10%. It's now that you are under Christ, you must decide in your own heart how much you give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Isn't that interesting? How many preachers need to read that one? They try to pressure and guilt people into giving. It says don't give reluctantly or or in response to pressure. Don't give in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. See, this moves us from beyond the question of, did I do my duty? To, which is harder, an examination of the heart. It causes us to examine our hearts. Not just that I tick the box. And when love is involved, the heart's condition becomes extravagant. It becomes generous. 
it becomes not about how little can I get away with, but about how generous can I be, like we see in the early church in Acts. You see, the law is always stated negative. That's why the Ten Commandments are stated that way. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's negative. You can't give less than 10%. That was the Old Testament. Love is stated in the positive. Love is stated as how much can I give? How much above 10% can I give? Love is always above and beyond. Law is always minimum. Law is always just keeping the line. So why would love ever be less than law? So in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, we see Christians giving to the needs of those in the church. In 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 1 Timothy 5, it talks about financially supporting Christian workers and pastors. In, 11, in Acts eleven twenty nine, 29, it promotes the feeding of the hungry. James 1, 27 talks about supporting widows and orphans. 2 Corinthians 8, 3 talks about giving what you can afford. And on and on the New Testament goes. It's no longer law. It's just the way you live when you're a Christian. Not because it's law again, but because I love Jesus. When I started making money when I was 14 years old, I committed, then I was just convinced of it then, that I would give at least 10% of everything that I made, even if it was from a paper route or whatever I was doing, to God. And it was something I've maintained throughout my life. Even when I went through those expensive university years, it was simply... This is what I need to do. And before Nancy and I got married, this is something that we talked about. You know, interestingly, um, the three issues that become the most divisive issues in marriages, if not dealt with, are, surprisingly, sex, money, and the third one is in-laws. Well, um, those are. Those are the three biggies. That's why we talk about those three in pre-marriage counseling. I do watch any sitcom about marriages and stuff, and those are the three things that they're always arguing about and fighting about and making jokes about. Those are the issues. And so when Nancy and I, um, before we even got married, we talked about this even while we were dating, about what we were going to do with our giving. And we decided that we would, for our life together, give 10% of our income before taxes. Now, again, I'm not saying this is what you have to do. I'm just saying this is what we've decided to give ourselves some kind of guideline. We said, hey, it's the first fruits, and uh, therefore, why should God get our money after the government's already put their fingers in it? And so we're going to give to God first, and then the taxes come, come after that. And so that's what we've been doing. And of this money, we usually give about 75% to our local church and then 25% to other organizations that we believe in and uh, want to be part of those causes. And then over and above this, I've paid every time I've gone to Cameroon or to Brazil or on missions trips, I've always paid for that out of my own pocket, never ask other people for money, and I don't even use what I call my tithe money for that. I just pay over and above that as this is also wanting to be just giving generously to other people. 
Now, I'm not saying that this is a copy that you need to follow or what you need to do. You need to decide on something for yourself for a guideline and how you want to do this and to be motivated by your love for Jesus. But I want to simply say this just to lead by example. There's nothing worse than a preacher coming up here and talking about all these things like that and not living it and doing it themselves. And also to let you know that this is a spiritual discipline. And that the spiritual discipline of giving is absolutely essential to growing in your faith. It teaches faith. It it teaches obedience. It teaches discipline. And it teaches sacrifice. All of these character traits that helps you become a more mature believer. People often wonder why their faith grows stagnant, why they're never seeing God moving in their life, and some of it is because they just don't risk enough. I mean, how are you ever going to see God in action if you never put yourself in a situation where you really do have to live by faith, not by calculated sight? It's hard to grow in your faith when you never live in a way that requires faith. And being faithful with your money is one of the ways that we can grow. In the New Testament, the the rich often have a bad reputation. Uh, We think of the rich young ruler who refused to give everything he had when Jesus asked him to. We know Jesus' words that it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to be able to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. You're always going to default to one of those as your true God. Paul gives some stark warnings when he says the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. And notice his next sentence. That's a phrase that many of us have kind of memorized. But look what he says next. And some people craving money have wandered from the, the faith and pierce themselves with many sorrows. And I've seen this happen in, in, over my ministry as well. People who started strong and who wandered from the faith because they got so caught up in making more money and making more money, and usually what ends up happening is occurring more and more debt and then trying to pay off that debt and on and on and on. It goes living beyond their means. So many people have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Because they've tried to live for money. They've craved money rather than craving Jesus. So if if these are some of the warnings in Scripture, it's probably wise to get rid of some of it. From a global perspective, we have to admit that everybody in this room here today is wealthy. And wealth can often be a big problem in the Western church. But it doesn't have to be that way. There are also plenty of great examples in the Bible, in the New Testament, of wealthy, generous people that were followers of Jesus. Think of of Joseph of Arimathea, who provided the spices and the new linen cloth and the new tomb for Jesus' body after he, he died on the cross. Or the converted tax collector who paid back four times the amount that he had earlier cheated people. I mean, think about how much of a witness that conversion was. I, I 
I would have hoped that I was cheated by that guy. I mean, could you imagine that? You were cheated by this tax collector, and now he becomes a Christian. He comes back to you and says, you know, back in 2004, I cheated you. Well, here's four times. You're like, wow, you're, that was a, that's a good investment. I mean, he came back four times the amount. You're like, why are you giving me back four times the amount you cheated me? I'm now a follower of Jesus. I mean, that's a witness. One of the highlights from my last church was a wealthy man who became a Christian while on a missions trip. And after his commitment to Christ, he asked me to come and pray over his multi-million dollar business because he said that now the majority of his profits were going to go towards mission. I remember on one missions trip that I went with him later on that, that where he brought over $100,000 in medical supplies, all paid out of his own pocket. Uh, when people get captured by a love for Jesus... Something changes about how they think about money. And being around people like that, the difference in their attitude, their openness, their joy, their generosity, their sense of adventure is contagious. It's something you want to be part of. As opposed, unfortunately, to the disobedient Christian. See, the disobedient Christian is one who sees their money primarily as their own. And therefore, they're not generous in their giving. This is a, this is a dangerous path to walk. Uh, Paul warns that many started off well in the faith and now have pierced themselves with many sorrows because of the way they've handled their money. In fact, the way they've handled their money has not only destroyed many people's faith, but the way they've handled money has often destroyed many people's relationships with others. Business partners, their spouse. Some people are not growing in their Christian life simply because they're holding their money as a god. It's become an idol, and when something becomes an idol, obviously that blocks discipleship because there is only one God. That's the first commandment, and only one God that should be worshipped. Another form of Christian disobedience with money is using it in a manipulative way. You know, with money comes power often. And so people can use their money in an unchristian way, to manipulate. Just as the Bible teaches that we should not give in response to pressure, neither is it right to use our money to put pressure on people or churches. And I've seen this happen. I've, I've had people come up to me and wanting to get certain things done. They say, hey, pastor, if we can do this and this, I'll give you this. It happens. Or, or pastor, we really should pursue that person. They give a lot to the church, and so therefore we should kind of maybe capitulate to them or maybe turn a blind eye to some of their bad behavior. It's unscriptural. It's unbiblical. Some Christians, when they don't like the way things are going in the church, they decide to just hold back their money. It's a way of using their money as power. I'm going to influence the church through my giving or not giving. It's disobedience. It's using money with strings attached. It's sinful. It's manipulative. It's playing politics. It causes division. The biblical imperative to give 
without your left hand knowing what your right hand is doing applies to not using your money to control people or churches or organizations that you give to. Money can give us an unhealthy sense of power, which is, again, one of the big three that can cause us to stumble in our walk with God. Because discipleship is all about surrendering. Surrendering what we want to God and to others. And sometimes we, as mature Christians, even pay and give towards things that we don't necessarily even like. Now, as I was putting this together, I I started thinking about some examples. About, for instance, I myself give to Bethany. And not everything and not every way that Bethany uses their money is towards things that I would do in the way that I like. And so as I was doing this, I started thinking about some examples, and then I thought, I better not give any. Because no matter what I say, I'm going to incriminate myself against those people who think, of course we should use our money for that. And so, but, but just to give the point, is that not everything and not every way and not every dollar that Bethany spends would be the way I'd do it. But see, it's not about me. We're a family, we're a community, and it's not all about what I like. It's about not only the community, but ultimately, it's about giving to God. I mean, if if organizations really use their money poorly, I mean, there gets to a point of discernment where you're saying, that's so out of line, I can't can't support that. Uh, But there's also a lot where you say, at the end of the day, my role, my job is to be faithful to God. They will be accountable. For what they do with it. I mean, could you imagine I see a beggar on the street and every single time I think about giving them some money, I calculate, well, is he going to use it for this or use it for that? Or, I mean, there comes a point where I just say, here's the money. You look like you're a person in need. And you know what? And sometimes I've even told people with this, how you use that money, God will hold you accountable for it. Rather than me tracing you down and all that. So you'll stand before God one day. Here's some money. That's my responsibility. Now you're responsible for how you use it. Sometimes we, we have to give without strings attached. Because it's simply faithful. So the reason I don't preach about ties is because it has nothing to do with your life as a Christian. And because there's absolutely nothing in the Bible about it. But the reason I do preach about tithes, or more accurately, for New Testament people, no longer under law, The reason I do preach about generous giving is because the implications of this in regards to growing as a mature Christian are astronomical. You're going to stall out in your walk with God if you don't get this. The Bible has so much to say about it. And so I've been here for eight years and I continue to promise to you for the years to come to be a biblical preacher. Which means that you will hear many more sermons on money and sex since these permeate our life and they litter the pages of the Bible. And you're going to hear no sermons about the types of strings that Derek uses on his guitar or the type of bread or the fake wine that we use for communion because none of that stuff matters. The Bible has nothing to say about it. And when we make those things issues, we work against the Holy Spirit and become anti-gospel people. 
and the heresy of divisiveness and schism enters into the church. And that is a heresy. People forget that. They only think of heresy as, you know, you deny the deity of Christ and things like that. Schism and divisiveness is heresy too. We're too flippant about that one. As Paul says in his stern warning at the end of Romans, I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for those people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They're serving their own personal interests. There's no place in the church for using your money for serving your own personal interests. If that's what you're going to do with it, keep it. We don't need it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He will always look after his people. He might not look after them the way that we think he should, but he always will. I have no worry about that. We're not here to serve our own personal interest. What matters is serving the interests of God. And what is he most interested in? A heart that loves him and loves one another extravagantly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and always at first we have to confess our failure and our sin to get love wrong, to love ourselves more than we love you and others. But Lord, we know that you're faithful, you're just, you love us, you forgive us. And Lord, when we understand how much we've been forgiven, even when we keep stumbling, when we understand the forgiveness and how much you've given yourself to us, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we become generous people in the way that we give and forgive and extend love to others. Even all those others that are mess-ups, just like we are. You're a God who gives. May we be a people who give. Because we love. Amen.